is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Rob Archer. And I'm Charles Feldman. More evidence that the COVID pandemic has really hurt kids. Math reading scores across the country declined, seeing the largest drop in math scores ever, while reading scores fell to 1992 levels. Well, this raises the question about whether we handled school closures all wrong. We'll go in-depth with the benefit of hindsight. The CDC director has COVID. We look into why this might stop some people from getting the latest COVID shot and why it shouldn't. Britain is getting a new prime minister in a historic move. We'll go to London to find out more about that. The L.A. area saw some blatant anti-Semitic acts over the weekend. Beverly Hills police are looking into one of them. We're going to go in-depth into why we're seeing all this yet again. Netflix and some big movie theater chains work out a business deal despite being competitors. Ukraine holds a movie awards show underground despite being at war and being shelled by Russia. And when you think of vacations and travel in the U.S., you think L.A., Las Vegas, Miami, New York. Well, one cold city made popular by a 1990s movie is looking to catch up to all of them when it comes to tourism. We'll tell you where and why. See, I don't think about L.A. and Vegas. I, I think of Poughkeepsie. <laughs> Somewhere far away. <laughs> yeah, when I think of vacation, I go, where do I want to go? Poughkeepsie. Because you want to go. You I don't wanna just want to hop over. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> we start, though, with the uh, pandemic test scores and whether schools should have closed for as long as they did. With us is Dr. Arthur Kaplan, founding head of the Division of Medical Ethics at NYU's School of Medicine. Doctor, thanks for being back with us. Appreciate it. Hey, by the way, I'm about 40 miles east uh, Poughkeepsie, where I'm talking. <laughs> so he knows. <laughs> so you know, right? It's a, it, people don't know it's the vacation spot Capital on Capital of the world, absolutely. absolutely. Um, you know, and we, and we said in the very top with the benefit of hindsight, and indeed it is, because we can't prove a negative. We don't know what would have happened, what course the pandemic would have taken had we kept schools open. But having said that, it does appear as if we've done incredible damage to an entire generation. I would agree. And I think damage occurred even more extensively than just loss of math skills or inability to keep up with reading. You know, we had a uh, pretty bad explosion in mental health problems in that group. Uh, Just people, kids being depressed, isolated, lonely, and so on. So the pandemic really took a big toll. And I think some of us or thinking backwards, well, was that man-made? Did we do it in part to ourselves? And I'm going to answer that and say partially. I don't think we handled uh, homeschooling very well. There were plenty of kids, again, near New York City where I am, didn't have a computer, didn't have Internet, couldn't really study or learn at all, and we did a lousy job looping them in. And I think some of the damage to underprivileged and poor kids was really bad. And I think we probably were in a situation where we could have kept the kids outdoors in many parts of the country and tried to run school that way. You know, a lot of this, too, is, you know, we talk about hindsight, but maybe we were kind of caught flat footed for this pandemic. And it's not like no one imagined that something like this could happen because 
in my Netflix queue, there's a TV show or a movie, I don't remember which, that came out, mm-hmm. uh, I think, in 2018. It was about a worldwide flu pandemic and what oh, would yeah. happen. Yeah. And yeah. and it, did no one game out what would happen? Like, what are we going to do with kids if we can't let kids go to school, but that's going to affect the, the mentally? And, and not just kids, but also just people in general, people at work. I mean, we've seen, a, we've seen an explosion of some mental problems and people just really caught socially flat-footed because of what happened during the pandemic. Why didn't we see more of this coming, and why didn't we plan better? Well, I think we panicked. In the initial stages of the pandemic, remember, we had no vaccines. People were dying left and right. It looked like it was just going to explode through the country. Uh, I'm going to say, not too hyperbolically, killing all of us. And so we took desperate measures of quarantine and business shutdown and all that. When we began to get the vaccines, the problem was we didn't use them enough. And so people kept saying, well, it's still dangerous. It's still dangerous. You don't want to, I mean, maybe it's bad to lose six months on your math score, but it's worse to get sick and die. We didn't really understand, if you will, who was at the greatest risk of uh, dying or being disabled uh, by the virus. So we have a sluggish school system that doesn't do a good job for everybody, We have some people homeschooling, and it looked like that might be an option because people do pick that, but, of course, they're better prepared and better resourced to do it than asking everybody to do it who wasn't so prepared. And then I just think we were, I'm going to say it again, I think we panicked at the beginning and maybe not even panic is the right word. We did what we had to do because we weren't sure how bad this thing was going to be. Why do I have this sort of, I don't know, uncomfortable feeling that we still haven't learned our lesson. And when the next pandemic, and there probably will be one, mm-hmm. comes along, we may not do any better. And and I'm, I'm offering as Exhibit A uh, the, the recent uh, monkeypox uh, issue, which turned out not to be, at least so far, uh, on the scale of COVID. But we didn't know that initially. It looked like it might be another frightening pandemic. But we did get our act together a little quicker on that, but not nearly quick enough. Right. And look, uh, as we get toward, at least in the northeast where I am, we have three outbreaks going on, respiratory viruses, flu, and COVID is still rattling around. The vaccination rate for kids under five is about 6%. 6%. Kids getting their boosters, I think it's about the same number. It's, if um, It's not very much bigger. So we're not really preparing, again, for what could be a pretty rough set of uh, winter months in the coldest parts of the United States where everybody goes indoors. So I don't think we've learned good lessons there. We haven't improved ventilation. We just continue to not pay attention to that and send kids back to dilapidated buildings where, you know, they're easily infected. So I think you're right. We didn't learn some of the key lessons. You know where things are better? Poughkeepsie. (laughs) <laughs> i'm gonna drive over there tonight <laughs> thank you so much that is uh dr arthur kaplan founding head of the division of medical ethics at nyu's school of medicine brought to you by the poughkeepsie chamber of yes Commerce. Yeah, no. coming up anti-semitic flyers have been found in beverly hills a day after anti-semitic signs were seen above the 405 and war with russia is not stopping ukraine from celebrating movies an award show they held it underground Right now, though, uh, CDC director Dr. Rochelle Walensky has tested positive for COVID. Now, this comes about a month after she got the latest COVID vaccine shot, you know, the uh, bivalent booster. 
With us is Dr. Sabrina Asumu, uh, infectious disease physician at Boston Medical Center and professor at Boston University School of Medicine. Doctor, thanks for being with us. So here's my problem with this. The CDC puts out a press release the other day over the weekend that uh, its director has COVID. It points out she had the booster a month ago and she has mild symptoms. But shouldn't we be at the time when something like that shouldn't, especially from the CDC, really be news, uh, even be a, a press release? Because I suspect that people who are anti-vaccine will use this bit of news to say, aha, I told you so. Here's somebody. She's head of the CDC. She had the latest uh, vaccine and she still gets covid without realizing that the shots were never designed to stop her from getting it to begin with. Yeah, no, I I know. I I can understand the frustration that everybody's having with this particular situation. But I think that the way that we address it is as a public health community, we're actually upfront with people. And we underscore the reason why initially when those vaccines came out and we all got very excited because we saw 96% protection, we realized that that 96% of uh, protection against infection actually wanes over time. But what is more critical and important is that the protection against severe disease remains. And this is why actually when someone asked me, why should I get vaccinated today? The reason why you need to get vaccinated is because those vaccines are really good about for, to protect us against severe disease, hospitalization, and death. Now, I understand it. Charles understands it. You understand it, that uh, you get the vaccines and you get the boosters and you try to stay up to date in all the boosters because it will keep you from, if you get COVID, getting seriously sick with it and having to go to the hospital. Because we recall the early days of the pandemic, people were going to the hospital and people were, were dying from this, being put on ventilators. We were having shortages in hospitals of protective equipment. But is that getting through to the average person on the street who doesn't pay attention uh, to the news because we have to because we work at it? So we, we we see what's going up, but most people aren't paying that close attention to it. And they, the first thing they think, like Charles said, is they go, oh, well, she got sick and she got the boosters, so the boosters are no good. Uh, what can what can the, the CDC or, or the medical field do to kind of maybe push this idea over so that everyone understands you get the shots so you don't die from this? Yeah, no, that's a very good point. That's what we're, we're going to ask help from you guys, from the media, right? So that the person who's not paying attention to every detail all the time because, you know, they have a busy life, so we're all busy, that we convey that message that the reason why these, these vaccines are so critical is to really prevent uh, severe disease, hospitalization, and death. And I, and I really like what you said before, which is because I think when I was thinking about this question, I remembered being at the hospital in 2020 in the spring here in Boston where people were dying and we had nothing. We're in a far better place than we were before. And the reason why is because we have these amazing vaccines that are doing a really good job against severe disease, hospitalization, and death. And it is it is true that um, initially we thought that they were going to perform better against infection, but you know, we just need to 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 convey that message that like the reason why you get vaccinated is to prevent get this to prevent severe disease, hospitalization, and death. Okay. Now that all said, let's go down a slightly different road here now, uh, and we'll use Doctor Walensky's case as an example. So she had the booster a month ago, and now she comes down with mild a mild case of COVID. Now, as you know, when these uh, new booster shots came out, they had not yet, and I don't think they still have actually completed the trials on it to determine how long immunity 
actually lasts. Uh, do you have any concern as a uh, infectious disease expert that Dr. Walensky, within roughly four weeks of getting that booster shot, so she had enough time to develop antibodies from the shot, that she still got COVID a month later? When I look at that situation, I think I'm thinking the vaccines worked, right? She had mild disease. She's at, she's at home, right? She's not in a hospital, intubated or very sick from it. So, so I see it as a win. And I think that that's how we should look at it. You know, these vaccines were actually, they're actually doing what they were designed for, which is to protect us against severe disease, hospitalization and death. And unfortunately, we got very excited and we have to be transparent with the public and say, you know, we got very excited in the beginning. And um, because if you think about it, we had nothing. And there was actually a possibility that we would not even have a vaccine against, you know, COVID-19. And we had something and those numbers were really amazing. And we just have to convey to the public that, yes, we were really excited about it, but now we need to recalibrate. But let's not forget the real message, which is that they work really well against what they were designed to do, which is to prevent severe disease, hospitalization and death. And I think you all point out something that's very important, too. Uh, science is is a matter of always saying that we're learning more now. We understand better than we did before, whereas dogma never changes its opinions because it can afford to. So, uh, you know, that's that's probably something to keep in mind there. We are always learning more and more. And the more we learn, the safer we get. Absolutely. We're learning more. And as I said, we just need to be upfront with the public and say, OK, we got a little carried away in the beginning, but let's not forget the real message that these vaccines are still our way out of this pandemic. All right. Thank you so much. Dr. Sabrina Asamu, infectious diseases physician at Boston Medical Center and professor at Boston University School of Medicine. Coming up, Netflix and movie theaters work out an unusual business deal and a city is bucking stereotypes from a popular movie and is becoming a growing tourist destination. We'll tell you where it is. Right now, though, history about to be made in the U.K. as Rishi Sunak is set to become the country's next prime minister. He will be the youngest prime minister in more than 200 years and the country's first non-white prime minister. So can he steer the U.K. out of its current economic problems? Uh, Jack Kessler joining us as a writer, columnist and author of the Evening Standards West End Financial uh, Final uh, Newsletter. And he is in London. Thank you so much for joining us. So uh, big problems ahead. Uh, Does he appear... I hate, I'm trying to figure out how to word this. Does he appear to be better able to handle this than the last uh, prime minister, Liz Truss? Good afternoon. Well, he, he surely can't do any worse. Um, he at least has uh, more than half of the Conservative Parliamentary Party supporting him um, to be leader and the next prime minister. Um, and uh, he is perceived as being a lot more sort of... Um, fiscally conservative than um, uh, Liz Truss, who came uh, before him. So, um, you know, we'll have to wait and see. This is sort of just what life is like in the UK these days. You know, there's a perverse part of me, Jack, uh, mainly because I don't live there, (laughs) that I'm kind of sorry that Boris Johnson didn't come back because it would have been so much fun. Uh, What happens to him now, do you think? Well, it's sort of like a long-running TV show where they the writers <laughs> run out of new characters and, and new actors and they just sort of go back to the old ones. Um, so you're, you're right to point out that Boris Johnson did not win, didn't even stand in the end, won't be the next prime minister. And, you know, for him, who knows? I mean, if there's an election in a couple of years' time, he may not even hold his seat. It's a relatively 
marginal seat um, these days. Um, so uh, I think it's likely that he will go off into the sunset at some stage and make a little bit of money on the um, speech circuit, that sort of thing. You know, I think it was a ringing endorsement. Can't do worse. And uh, I think that would be a great campaign slogan here in the States. Now, speaking of which, uh, politics in the U.K., very different. Uh, the, the system of government, very different. And as I understand it, that uh, uh, Rishi Sunak is going to be the second unelected leader of uh, Britain in uh, two months. Uh, why not have a general election now? What's the, what's the holdup? And, and am I misunderstanding that? You've got it perfectly uh, right. I mean, one way to ensure that there are no baseless accusations of stolen elections is just not to have an election at all. There you go. Um, so, <laughs> Why have them? Uh, Sunak, um, you know, it's, it's a parliamentary system and the Conservatives won a very large majority in uh, 2019. Um, and there is absolutely no obligation to hold a general election. The prime minister is basically the person who can command a majority in the House of Commons. Um, but there will be far greater pressure to, if not to hold one soon, than to sort of demonstrate that the Conservative Party is still capable of leading, that it hasn't simply descended into factionalism. Um, I appreciate it may seem strange to an American audience that you can keep changing your leader. Rest assured that your politics seems pretty strange to us from outside too. Well, it seems strange to us even yeah, here. Yeah. So, 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 yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, the um, uh, I don't know. I'm just kind of wondering what the average, if there is such a thing, average Brit thinks about all this. I, am I right that if there were to be an election, say next week, uh, he wouldn't probably win. His party wouldn't win anyway, and therefore he wouldn't be prime minister. And and is it also because he's not at all representative of the average person in, in Great Britain, is he? I mean, his wife has a lot of money. She could buy Europe. Well, it, it's certainly the case that his, he, um, I think he's, uh, his, well, as his, his wife is, and the family is exceptionally wealthy. He may be the first Prime Minister to, to shake hands with the monarch and be actually wealthier than the monarch is. <laughs> um, uh, but this is it, it's um, the Conservative Party is um, very far behind in, in the polls. Labour, the opposition, uh, but according to some polls, are more than thirty points in front, um, which in some ways is encouraging. That you know, it's the, the UK isn't so sort of partisanly divided that you know. Conservatives can lose support if they're if they're proving that they're struggling to govern. Um, it's one of the reasons why there isn't going to be an election anytime soon because the Conservatives would certainly uh, lose it. And the the challenge for them, obviously, is to if they can't claw back all thirty of those points they're behind, if they can make the next election more competitive at this point, they may, they may see that as success. Uh, very quickly, when I know it's not a planned thing. When would the next election be? How far away do you think it is? So the last possible moment it can be held is January 2025. I cannot think of anyone on the left or the right of politics who wants a general election in the height of winter in 2025, even if there's a bit more gas than there is at the moment. Um, but that's the last possible moment. The most likely time would be in the summer of uh, of 2024. All right. Thank you so much, Jack Hessler, a writer, columnist, author of the Evening Standard's West End Final newsletter in London. 
This is KNX In-Depth with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. Police in Beverly Hills now looking into the disbursement of about 25 anti-Semitic flyers in the north end of the city, investigators say. They pose no significant threat, but it is a brazen act that doesn't seem to happen in the city. It also comes after an anti-Semitic banner and other signs were hung over the 405 freeway by people who made Heil Hitler gestures. Jeff Abrams is the regional director of the Anti-Defamation League Los Angeles. Jeff, thanks for being with us. So we've had these sort of things happen from time to time in, in L.A. It does seem as if this has picked up. Is that a an accurate perception? Thank you very much for having me today. There is a surge of anti-Semitism happening in our community right now. It seems like almost on a weekly, uh, a monthly, almost a daily basis, we're seeing all different forms of anti-Semitism, which has no longer is hidden in the closets of years past, it's coming into our streets. It's coming onto our freeways. One of the biggest freeway over, one of the biggest freeways most trafficked in the country. Leaflets being dropped in neighborhoods. A couple of weeks ago, there were billboards in the Melrose Fairfax area. At the Grove a couple of weeks ago, there were hundreds of hate speech flyers left on people's cars. There is a surge of anti-Semitism in our community and it's being accelerated by prominent people, frankly, like Kanye West and the anti-Semitic rhetoric they're engaging in. And speaking of prominent people, you had the former president of the United States not very long ago tweeting that U.S. Jews better get their act together, quote unquote. Uh, how much does that factor into this this general trend of it becoming more open? And is it being driven in part by the rise of conspiracy theories like uh, QAnon? Well, what you saw is every time there's a prominent person, an elected official, a celebrity, when they engage in these anti-Semitic tropes, this rhetoric, it gives license. It, 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 it gives an accelerant to those hate speech groups who are so committed to, to at every opportunity spreading their rhetoric of hate, anti-Semitism, racism, homophobia. So this has all been mounting and continuing and growing, and in no small measure, it's because also of the Internet where things can spread so quickly. Do we know or suspect where the incidents here in L.A. are coming from in the sense of are these agitators from outside the community that are coming in or are these people that live amongst us? So unfortunately, it's it's both. Uh, we are very familiar, as is law enforcement, with this group of propagandists. Um, they uh, are all around our nation. Some of them are located in Southern California, the leadership in Northern California, and they come into communities to spread their hate. And so every time this happens, the goal they have is to terrorize. And the more people who are exposed to it and the more, more people who seem to, if not be shocked by it, each and every one of these is shocking. But because it happens so frequently these days, there's a sense it's becoming normalized. And we have to fight against that. There's some rhetoric, uh, political rhetoric coming out uh, recently, uh, people talking about, you know, we've got to fight against the global cabal. And do you think that terms like that, global cabal, uh, people behind the scenes, George Soros, always bringing him up. Is that to you dog whistles and, and just promoting this anti-Semitic outlook? Well, there's no question. Oftentimes these these phrases are, are coded globalist, criticizing George Soros, 
These are direct ways of really attacking the Jewish community, but it's just done in code. I mean, to a certain extent, uh, it's quite clear that sometimes it's in code, sometimes it's quite overt and expressed. Kanye West, when he is declaring DEFCON 3 on the Jews, when he's making outrageous and unambiguous anti-Semitic comments, well, this this also has the the added effect of it serving as an accelerant to hate groups like the ones that that uh, hung the banner and dropped the fire. In private chat groups, our ADL Center on Extremism, which monitors the dark web of how these hate groups operate, they're gleeful right now. They now have one of the most prominent people on the planet who they now view as supporting their work. So how can this be confronted? Well, in part, it's by doing things like we're doing right here this very day, and I thank you for the opportunity. It's speak up. Every single time there's an opportunity or you see something, speak out, call it out. With Kanye, listen, there are tens of millions of followers, people who like him, each who have their own voice. Companies that do business with him, companies like Adidas, for example, they have a choice of whether to do what's right. But so far, they failed to do so. They've refused to reconsider their business relationship with Kanye West. And so what we're urging is every one of your listeners, Jewish and non-Jewish alike, use your voice. Go to our website, adl.org, and you'll see our campaign, One Run Away From Hatred. Send a message to Adidas that, simply put, they should not be in business with anti-Semites. I heard audio from uh, Ye. He was kind of bragging about the fact that he could say anti-Semitic things and Adidas can't do anything about it. Uh, What do you make of that? And would you call for a boycott of Adidas until they separate ties with them? Well, we've been very clear about that. Our CEO, Jonathan Greenblatt, has been very clear about that. We think that Adidas should stop doing business with Ye, with Kanye West. Just as this very day, leading entertainment companies... His now former agents at CAA have said, we won't do business with him. The company MRC, which was about to release a documentary, they said, we're not going to release a documentary about this person because what is he doing? He's spreading hatred. So there is an opportunity to stand up. There's no impunity for what he's engaged in. Thank you so much, Jeff Abrams, Regional Director of the Anti-Defamation League, Los Angeles. Movie theater chains tend to view Netflix as a direct threat to their business especially when movie studios release their films to the streaming service and in theaters at the same time. That's why a new deal cut between Netflix, AMC, Regal Cinemas, and Cinemark is so unusual. The theater is going to release the sequel to Knives Out called Glass Onion, a Knives Out mystery. It's going to run for about a week in the theaters and then come out on Netflix. And with us to explain this unusual business move in Hollywood is Rebecca Rubin, Variety's film and media reporter. So I can tell you I was a big fan of the the first Knives Out movie. I loved it. thought it was great. Uh, can't wait for the sequel. I'm not going to go to the theater to see it. I'm going to wait for it to come out a week later on Netflix. Is Netflix worried that that's going to make the film lose some money that it could otherwise make? I don't think that it's necessarily concerned about box office as much as the traditional Hollywood studios are because Netflix is traditionally more dependent on uh, retaining and and boosting subscribers. But if they can get a little more attention for this film and then in a month, some people want to rewatch it when it comes on Netflix, well, then maybe they view that as a win. Why would movie theater chains want to go along with this? 
So it's a good question because for a very long time, Netflix and the major movie theater chains had a very contentious relationship. And I wouldn't say it's totally bliss right now, but this is coming at a time where movie theaters are in desperate need of content. They need new movies to be enticing um, customers in between these big blockbusters like the Marvel movies that are coming out. And so I think they're being a little more flexible than they used to be because in the case of Glass Onion, it's a sequel to Knives Out, like you mentioned, which was a major a major theatrical hit. And so it sounds like in their minds, well, if we're going to make an exception for a movie, let's let it be one that we believe is going to be a hit. It has that built-in fan base from the original. And, you know, not just Netflix, but you've got major tentpoles coming out, Marvel superhero films uh, showing up in theaters for maybe more than a week, but definitely for a little while longer. And then showing up on Disney Plus, where Marvel has a deal with uh, Disney. Disney owns everything. Uh, So are you are we going to see more of this happen? And will eventually the people who make the movies, the theater chains and the streaming services eventually figure out kind of a protocol that will become kind of the norm. Like they'll be in theaters for a month or six weeks and then they're going to show up on streaming. Well, to answer the first part, I think what is interesting about this in specific, because Netflix has put some other movies in theaters for varying theatrical windows, some longer than a week. And this is not that long of a window for for Glass Onion, but it's going to be playing a month before it goes on Netflix. And I think that actually is an incentive to movie theater owners to put it in their theaters because Netflix subscribers will still have to wait a full month if they want to watch it. And and typically what Netflix has done is they'll put it in theaters and then a week later you can watch it on Netflix. There isn't really a real incentive to go to theaters. Now it seems like there's a little bit more of an incentive and the theaters will be able to see how that plays out if if there is a boost in attendance because they can't watch it on Netflix in a few days. Um, that being said, I do think that movie theaters and streaming service, it sounds like it's in the best interest of everybody to come to some sort of collective agreement on keeping movies in theaters because it helps the people making the movies make more money. It helps the movie theaters make more money. And in the end, really, that's that's the main thing that they want here. So it's in their best interest to work together, figure out an arrangement that feels like it's a win to everybody. So is the near future, if not already the present, look something like this, that movie theaters are the places to go to to see the big spectaculars? But if you want to watch a kind of, I don't know, story, um, you watch it at home? It certainly feels like it's leaning in that direction. I think there will always be exceptions to that rule. Some Something like a, a Glass Onion, even. It's not a big superhero movie. It does have a ton of big stars, but... Murder mysteries aren't necessarily a huge genre in theaters. If it gets people talking enough, I think any movie has the potential to draw an audience in theaters. But for the most part, it feels like it's becoming more and more overly reliant on these big superhero movies, these massive tent poles like Jurassic World and even Avatar that's coming out, um, these big spectacles. So in other words, what you're telling us is if if someone is tired of the big spectacles, the superhero films, the CGI extravaganzas, uh, you're you're not going to see much of anything else for a while. Well, I think if 
people go to theaters to see movies like Glass Onion, it incentivizes Hollywood to keep putting these movies in theaters. And so I don't think it will totally go away. I I just think maybe they'll figure out some sort of backstop, like you mentioned, uh, putting it on streaming earlier than they might have for a superhero movie. It helps the studios cut their losses a bit if it's not making as much as it would have in theaters. But during the pandemic, a lot of the conversation was this fear that movie theaters would go away. And I think that what both movie theaters and studios have found is that theaters are very important in terms of raising the cultural awareness for a movie. And it helps a movie stick around longer in the conversation. And so I do think that there is benefit as long as a movie is well-made and well-received, there there can be a case for people to go see it in theaters, even if it does not have a superhero in it. Uh, one quick uh, question before we let you go. And anyone who has been in a movie theater for the past six months will know exactly what I mean by this. But are they ever going to stop showing that Nicole Kidman thing? <laughs> Absolutely not. They tried AMC. AMC um, commissioned this commercial with Nicole Kidman, and it took off in a way that I don't think any parties expected. They tried to shorten it. They tried to get rid of it. People petitioned. People have gotten T-shirts printed with Nicole's face on them. Uh, SNL did a spoof of it. I I think they are going to be riding high on this. It's the best advertising they could have ever ever asked for. All right. Uh, thank you so much, Rebecca. Uh, Ruben, Variety's film and media reporter. And we've got uh, more KNX in depth on the way. And if anyone doesn't know what we were talking mm-hmm. about, go to a movie theater yeah, and you'll see. And you will see what, exactly what we're talking about. Although my wife's question would be yeah. are they ever going to turn the air conditioning down so that you're not freezing? Well, that too. And maybe turn the speakers down just a little bit because we're old. You are listening to KNX in depth. I'm Rob Archer, along with Charles Feldman. Imagine if the U.S. was invaded and we held the Oscars, the Grammys, or the Emmys in an underground bunker somewhere in L.A. It might sound safer just to cancel the shows. Well, not in Ukraine. The Ukrainian National Film Critics Association handed out its awards late last week from an underground bunker studio in Kiev. And they even broadcast the ceremony. With us now is Kirill. He lives in Kiev. He's been with, on with us uh, before talking about the situation in Ukraine. And uh, by the way, Kirill was one of the presenters. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, tell us, what was it like to hold an awards show in the middle of a war? Uh, hi, Charles. Hi, Rob. Uh, always a pleasure. Well, it was a little bit surreal, I think, because uh, the award is, I think it was five years of this award, and uh, this was first one for me as a, a person who, uh, take, not taking an award, but presenting an award. So yeah, it's a little bit surreal for the first time, but we actually have some repetitions, and uh, we, we prepared for what will happen. What, what kind of films were up for awards or, or got awards? Uh, uh, can you tell again? Yeah, what, what sort of films were given awards? Uh, it was Ukrainian movies. Uh, so, yeah, as uh, documentaries, uh, short movies, so animation, all kind of Ukrainian films. 
How comfortable was it down in that underground bunker? Did you hear any explosions off in the distance during the awards show? Well, uh, it was quiet during the awards show, so it was uh, okay to do this ceremony. Uh, but uh, actually, the second day of our repetition, it was an aerial alarm, I think, for the three or four hours. So it was a lot to have time in bunker. Uh, but it, it was okay. It's uh, a very good shelter, so it's it's quite safe. And it's amazing that it's a whole studio here and a lot of people working there every day. Of course, it takes a long time to make some films anyway. Were any of the films, some of the films, none of the films, all of the films, uh, themed to the uh, war? Yes, yes. Uh, some documentaries were shot at, uh, uh, during this war, and uh, some of them were shot at about the war. Uh, a lot of movies were shot about this particular war, but mm, not all of them came to the short list. But yeah, it's a lot of uh, a lot of movies right now that was uh, filmed about this war and uh, eight years before the full scale invasion. So, was part of the decision to have the award show and to have it down in the underground bunker, regardless of what was happening uh, up on the ground, was it uh, meant to send a message to Putin? Well, of course, in a way, we uh, stand in on position that we not fear, and uh, we continue living, even through the suffering, even through the pain. So. Uh, that's why uh, this uh, award was so important, because uh, Ukrainian cinema must live and we must appreciate uh, our filmmakers, our actors, our directors. So even during the war, uh, even during war, it's really important to do this and uh, really important to help all Ukrainians understand that uh, we have cinema, and it's good, and we are awarding it. How many people showed up for this award ceremony? Well, uh, because of the whole bunker situation, uh, there was only uh, the people who work in the studio and uh, uh, my colleagues who gifted award to the uh, nominants. All right, thank you so much. Kirill uh, lives in Kiev in Ukraine. They held an awards show in the middle of war. I remember during the height of the pandemic, we postponed some of our awards shows and, and put them back. But here they have the rockets coming down, explosions happening, and they go ahead and have it in a bunker. You know, when some people think of Fargo, North Dakota, what comes to mind? Snow, cold weather, maybe the movie, of course. You probably think of it as a sleepier town where not a lot happens, but you would be wrong on that part. Fargo has been upping its game when it comes to food, shopping, and culture. Tourists are also noticing, and they're flocking there. Danny Melquist is Director of Marketing for the Fargo-Moorhead Convention and Visitors Bureau. Uh, how much is Fargo like the movie now? Yeah, great question. Um 
It is nothing like the movie. I mean, um, we have to admit there is a lot of cold weather, you know, definitely on the horizon and um, it can get pretty chilly around here. But um, I mean, there is a huge downtown art thriving um, area. There's a lot going on in the in the downtown and all throughout all three cities, Fargo-Moorhead and West Fargo. Um, so it's not like that flat, desolate thing that you see in the movie. I've actually been to Fargo a number of times recently, in fact, and it has changed over the years, especially downtown. So my question is, who is it that you're trying to attract to move to Fargo? I mean, obviously, some of it is for the current residents, but I also suspect that some of what is happening, especially in the downtown area, the new hotel that's down there, is designed to attract not just tourists, but perhaps new residents. Yeah, um, so we actually have a huge tech hub um, in the Fargo-Moorhead area. Um, some of, like, we have the second largest Microsoft campus in the area. Um, so we are trying to kind of get that um, younger age to kind of look at Fargo in a different way and possibly move here um, to kind of start a family, um, you know, find find a home in the area. We also have um, a lot of biotech in the area as well. So Eldevron's one of our largest um, companies for that. So they actually assisted with one of the COVID vaccines. Um, so we have a lot going on kind of in that space as well. So you say it's nothing like the film. So we assume that means there are no hitmen there and they're not throwing mm -hmm. bodies into wood chippers. Uh, but speaking of the movie, do, do you have some tourists still coming these days uh, because of the film? Or did that kind of die out after the movie was popular in the 90s? No, we still have a, quite a lot of um, tourism focused around the movie and also the show as well, um, the TV show on FX. Um, and we do have the wood chipper um, prop from the movie in our visitor center. So there is, we kind of see that day to day, um, a lot of tourists coming in looking for um, information on the movie. They're still, it's a very popular cult um, film for people still to this day. Are you allowed to put anything into the wood chipper? <laughs> uh, the spark plug is out, so you okay. can't put anything in. But um, yeah, well, there it, is a fake leg in there, though. So, <laughs> uh, is there something that when tourists come to visit, that people who are from Fargo, a question or perhaps a perception they hate the most? Um, I mean, everyone kind of thinks we have the the standard accent, so that that can get to people. Um, but yeah, I mean, people truly think that there is nothing to do in the area and that definitely um, can rub people the wrong way just because there is so much going on in the area. Um, there is just, a, it's way different. Like you said, it's a lot different even in the past 10, 20 years than it was before. Um, there's just a huge growing area in, in Fargo. But you know, Danny, that raises the question, why don't you have that accent? <laughs> Great question. Um, usually it is the um, kind of more rural areas that do have the accent, but sometimes it does come out. I, there's a you betcha here and there that comes out, but um, yeah, not every day. So earlier we were talking about, we were joking about uh, Poughkeepsie as being a nice place to go. So uh, you working for the Fargo area, why is Fargo better than Poughkeepsie? 
<laughs> and and let, me, um, let, me, let me give you one 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 hint here, Danny. It'll help you out. Yeah. Poughkeepsie's okay. really, Poughkeepsie's really not nice. <laughs> so <laughs> Fargo wins hands down. But go ahead. Go ahead. Um, nothing against Poughkeepsie at all, but um, yeah, I mean, there's just it's such a unique space. We have some of the nicest people ever just kind of in this thriving space. So um, it's it's a unique place to visit. It's um, something that you won't be able to find anywhere else. Just the, the culture and the community alongside just amazing art and music and food. Um, it's just unlike anywhere else. All right. So she said it is cold. Uh, is there a good time of year to go? Is there a better time of year to go? Um, okay, so it's only really cold for a few months. So, um, the, like, we just had a gorgeous fall. It's still happening now. Um, like, 70s, really nice um, fall. I, I do, I love the summer. It's just really warm and um, great to get outdoors, have some ice cream downtown, kind of walk around, see the different stores and stuff. But, um, yeah, I mean, really... I would recommend probably any time between May and um, October. But if you really want to see Fargo in all its winter glory, there's a lot to do in the winter as well. We do have a winter festival that kind of gets people outdoors. Um, we have different things to do as well. So if you, there's a good time to visit no matter the time of year. Now, to be totally honest with people, when you say it gets cold there in the winter, tell everybody how cold it can get. um yeah i mean for for some winters there's it gets way down there (laughs) i mean um, (laughs) that's an official measurement way down yes (laughs) um i mean it can get as low as like 50 below zero with the wind chill um but yeah i mean i think our average in january is like 18 degrees somewhere around there oh that's nice that's balmy yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <All right. laughs> Feels great. <laughs> uh, what's the next step? Uh, I, I'm presuming that the redevelopment is not over. So what's next? Yes. Um, so currently some big projects out um, are on the horizon. We have a new water park going in. Um, we have some more. Um, we have a community theater going in downtown. Um, We have a science museum that is about to be built um, in the next few years. Um, So a lot lot of new attractions. Um, There's new restaurants popping up all the time, Um, new new shops and things like that as well. So um, yeah, I mean, it's just a great time to visit. There's a lot of new stuff coming coming around the bend. It'll surprise people, but you know, Rob, it, it, one of the best, and the New York Times piece mentions it, one of the best delis is actually in Fargo. In Fargo. Yeah, it, it's really pretty good. But you it's know, probably cold. Yeah, Danny, you know the one I'm talking about. It, it It's really good. All right. Yes, uh, yeah, burn bombs. Yes, that's um, the <laughs> Yes. <laughs> we'll head there for lunch. Thank you yes. so much. Uh, Danny Melquist, Director of Marketing for the Fargo-Moorhead Convention and Visitors Bureau. And that's going to do it, it for it, uh, KNX Today. It really, it, it rivals anything in New York or L.A. Really good. Yeah, and you're a, really good. you're kind of a foodie, so you would well, know. Well, I'm from New York yeah. and now L.A., just, so, yeah. Just don't eat anything that comes out of a wood chipper. Uh, no, 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 definitely not. Don't no. do that. Because that'll only chip your teeth. Yeah. You know, so. <laughs> KNX In-Depth uh, tomorrow at 1 o'clock.